0: Well, good morning, and if you would, please open your Bibles to Luke 19. I have a few announcements before we begin. Number one, next Sunday, we will transition into our one-service format. There will be Sunday school for all ages, beginning... Um, four years of age up through adult Sunday school will be at 9am we'll hold until 945 we'll break from 945 to 10 o'clock, that's for bathroom breaks for your children and whatnot, freshen up a bit and to come into here to worship the Lord together, if you have young families, young children that you're training up you're teaching them how to sit through service the fellowship hall will be set up um as we're set up in here, and the service will be fed through uh, the video screen during the fellowship hall. So again, that is a place to train your children. Um, if, if if they're able to sit through service, well, they're more than welcome to be in here, and that's the point. Uh, we will also um, add to the service time of worship next week a, a passing of the plate for um, offering. People have mentioned this. Over the last couple years, why we don't do that. Well, when I took over, we didn't do that. But offering is a is a is a form of worship. I learned to give by watching my father every week, write out a check, and as the past plate, the, the, as the plate passed in front of me, my father put it in there, and it taught me, as a child, the element of worship. It is giving so this is not the strong arm anyone if you're a member of this church you know we give that's what we do that's what Christians do we give to support the ministry so I don't want that to be a shock to you and hopefully you're certainly not offended by that but we will pass the play Mm -hmm. beginning um, next Sunday now I want to ask you as parents if you would please um, the age-appropriate classrooms Let's say you have uh, two children. One is nine and the other is ten. And for convenience to yourself, you say, I'll just throw them both in the ten-year-old group. We ask that you please don't do that. If you have a nine-year-old, they go in the nine-year-old class. If you have a ten-year-old, they should attend the ten-year-old class. I trust I, You can trust us that you have wonderful teachers who are in place, who care about your children. They'll teach them the Word of God. And the entire church will be going basically through the same curriculum. We're going dust to glory. We're going Genesis to Revelation. We're going creation to the new creation. It'll take us over a year to do that. And uh, we'll, we'll have fun, I'm sure. Now, also, in the bulletin, there's a list of areas of opportunity to serve the church. Uh, we are in, I will say, almost desperate need in some areas that lack service. So um, if you desire to serve in the church, um, there's points of contact there. You can uh, reach out and um, offer, and please, committed service, committed service. So I believe that's it. I'll share uh, next week my Africa trip, uh, which is coming up at the end of uh, April. I've been invited to go um, teach pastors in Africa for three weeks um, in the midst of a church that is very corrupt down there. So I'll, I'll give you more information, so if you would, please be praying for that. Greatly appreciate it. You still need uh, financial support for that as well. All men, beloved. Thank you very much for your time. Now, if you would, please open your Bibles to Luke, the 19th chapter, as we will look together at verses 28 to 40. The Word of God reads... Verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This ends the reading of God's word this morning. I studied what a coronation looks like a bit this week. And I read about the coronation of Queen Victoria, that her regalia was uh, quite amazing. Everything that could possibly be brought upon her. Um, and a queen's coronation was done for her. Um, her crown was covered with giant rubies and sapphires surrounding a 309-carat diamond Hello. <laughs> I read about the coronation of false systems, false systems of belief this week. The false religious system of the Latter-day Saint movement held a coronation where James Strang, a would-be successor of Joseph Smith, staged an elaborate coronation for himself. A ceremony complete with a throne, a wooden scepter, a breastplate, and a crown described by one is a shiny metal ring with a cluster of glass stars in the front. We think about the pomp and pageantry of the American presidential inauguration. It's comparable in many ways to a monarch's coronation. When you think about the presidential motorcade alone, it is like a triumphal entry of a warrior. I don't know if you know all that's involved with the motorcade of the president. I'm going to share a bit with you this morning. First of all, whenever the president travels on Air Force One, his cars go with him. When he moves from point A to point B, local police lead the way. Secret service vehicles are involved, two or more limos are involved, press vans, along with a counter-assault team. The presidential car is fitted with five-inch-thick military-grade armor, wheels that can run on flat tires, doors that weigh as much as a Boeing 757 airplane cabin door, a leak-proof fuel tank invulnerable to explosions. The vehicle is sealed against biochemical attacks and has its own oxygen supply. A firefighting system built into the trunk, and the lower part of the vehicle's front-end bumper is able to emit tear gas. The vehicle can also fire a barrage of smoke grenades, a rocket-propelled grenade, and in addition to that, an anti-tank missile, fired remotely by the countermeasures suburban which trails the president's limo. Bet you didn't know that. And kept in the trunk is the blood bank of the president's blood type. The outside crowd can only be heard through internal speakers when you turn them on. That's a triumphal entry. (laughs) Nothing like this was seen in the earthly coronation of the King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The cosmic creator of all things. No formalities, no jewels, no dignitaries, no robes, no musicians, no motorcades. His birth was in a stable. His coronation came by way of riding on a donkey's colt towards his passion, the passage to his crucifixion. Here this morning we see the entry to the passion now the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem is recorded in all four gospel accounts it's rare that you see four distinct portions of the Lord's ministry clearly defined by each one of the four gospel writers but this event is this event, this event takes place at Passover Um, In Christ's public ministry of three plus years, he comes to Passover all three years. His first visit, as recorded in John chapter 2, provides emphasis upon his purpose, and that was to cleanse the temple. His second Passover visitation highlights uh, the bread of slavery that becomes the bread of freedom Where Jesus says to that Galilean mob who wanted to rush him away and make him king, he said, most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs and believe I am who I am, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. He said, behold, I am the bread of life. And here now in the third Passover visit of his ministry, we see the messianic image of Christ stressed here at the outset. What Jesus wouldn't allow in his second visit He now provides approval to honor him as king, for he is king. So the stage is set now for this triumphal entry, and there's three points of interest for us this morning outlined for you on your bulletin. And I want you to notice first uh, his sovereign direction. In other words, he's in some sovereign control of this event. Secondly, his lowly entrance towards this event. And then finally, the temporal royal welcome of those that surround him during this event. Notice first his sovereign direction, verse 28. Now, the point is is that Jesus is controlling the timing and the technique of this entry. He's in control of the when and how of this entry. Notice... Verse 28, when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now, these things is the, uh, are the, par- the words with regard to the parable of the ten talents, which he says as he uh, departs from Jerusalem or Jericho, rather, passes through Jericho, and begins to ascend up towards Jerusalem. We see that in chapter 19, verse 1. <coughs> he's ascending. And he's leading his disciples, beloved, towards the passion. He goes before them. In the face of all that he will suffer, arrest, mockery, spitting, flogging, and death, he moves towards the passion. He goes ahead. So he's going up to Jerusalem now as king. Not to be made king, but he is king. And he's going for the sake of acquiring all that is his. And that is the kingdom for which he earned the right to rule over by perfect obedience to the Father. He'll be made the perfect Passover land, beloved, because of his active and passive obedience to the Father. Alright? Now, in case you don't know the meaning of those terms, we'll break those down quickly here. Uh, first, you have the active obedience of Christ. And Christ's active obedience is his perfect performance of the requirements of God's divine law. He obeyed every aspect of the law, he obeyed them in heart. He obeyed them in mind. He obeyed them in action. He obeyed perfectly. He was holy, as Hebrews 7.26 informs us. He was holy, he was innocent, and unstained. He obeyed the law without one slip, without any failure whatsoever. So the aspect of the act of obedience of Christ is this for the believer, all whose faith and trust are placed in Jesus Christ alone, the active, obedient aspect of his ministry is placed upon your account as though you upheld the law perfectly. And the Lord's passive obedience signifies for us his willingness in bearing all the penalties that are imposed by the law against those who fail to fulfill the law. So he passively goes to the cross as though he violated every aspect of the law On behalf of every sinner who will believe and he suffers he voluntarily places himself into the hands of sinful man so he actively upholds the law and then he passively lays down his life as a sacrifice as though he violated the law and those who believe his active obedience is placed upon their account those who believe his passive obedience and suffering on your place is also placed upon your account so as it's been said, Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. He's the king whose passion it was to fully satisfy the father, redeeming people for himself, you see. Now before he allows himself to be arrested, he'll pray, John 17, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, act of obedience, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed by way of passive obedience, death, resurrection, and ascension. So he goes on ahead of them, ahead of his disciples, ascending towards Jerusalem. You see, beloved, when he sends disciples, he goes before them, If He, beloved, leads you either up or down, a winding road of uncertainty, a valley of anguish, if He leads you into the wilderness of temptation, He's already gone before you. And He goes before you again. He sustains you. He upholds you in the midst of it all. When you die, you'll be led into glory and He's already preceded you. He's already gone before you. Remember what Jesus said just hours before he was arrested. He said to his disciples in John chapter 14, verse 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus goes and he prepares a way for his disciples. And that includes you. Now, don't have in your mind that he's up there building heaven, preparing it. Preparation for you to enter into heaven was the cross. I go to prepare a place for you by way of passive obedience. Having actively obeyed. So here now he's ascending to Jerusalem with a deliberate pace and purpose in mind. And it is to suffer and die as a substitute going up he's not going to be made a king he is king who's coming to lay his life down to receive the kingdom given to him by the father as a reward for perfect holy obedience notice verse 29 when he drew near to, to bethphagy in bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples now jesus had just spent the day and night with mary and martha and their brother lazarus in bethany We see this from John's account in John chapter 12. Now, these were some uh, very close friends of the Lord Jesus. He loved Mary and Martha. He loved Lazarus. He just recently, at this point, had raised Lazarus from the dead. John 12 tells us that six days before the Passover, this would have been probably Saturday, um, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. We get down to verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came. Now, they wouldn't have come on Sabbath. This would have violated the Sabbath law in their mind. So they come not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And then, verse 12, the next day, a large crowd came and he enters in. It would have been Monday. He sends two of his disciples into the village. Now, Jesus made a habit, always made it a habit of sending two disciples, sending his men, his apostles, his disciples, two by two. And here, he sends them with a very specific errand. And again, this task is preordained. This is according to his sovereign direction. Notice verse 30. He says, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which, now don't miss this, no one has ever yet sat. Okay? Store that one away. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has needed it cut and dry, plain and simple, amen? The Lord has need. The Lord has need of them. That's the phrase that releases them. The donkey and its colt, released. And Jesus assures them that they will find exactly that which he has preordained. Verse 32, so those who were sent away, They found it just as he told them, and as they were untying the cold, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the cold? And they said, The Lord has needed it. Now, Matthew's account, chapter 21, verse 3, Jesus said this, If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, many a commentator has suggested that this was a kind of password to Jesus' friends. And it may be. And if so, it remains the password for all the friends of Jesus to this very day. Amen? Amen. If we claim to be disciples, then whatever possessions we have, this is the ad acid test toward, uh, of my attitude towards those very things. You know, is this the Lord's and, you know, this is mine? This is my family's, but this is the Lord's? Or is this and th- is it all the Lord's? It's all the Lord's, whether we believe it or not. It's all his. Mark 11, verse 6, his account, it tells us that they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. They let them go. The mother and her wild donkey, Colt. This is the password of the king. And they pay homage to this king. So there then we see clearly that Jesus is in absolute control here. This is all according to his sovereign direction. Okay? Moving along now, notice our second point. Notice his lowly entrance to this event. Verse 35. They brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now, up to, up to this point, Jesus has kept his messianic role under wraps. Remember when they identified Jesus in Caesarea Philippi as who he was? He's Messiah. He said, but don't tell anyone to his disciples. This now is a very public event. This now, beloved, is a rolling out of the red carpet, if you will, for the Lord of glory. But Jesus' red carpet entry is very different from our own president, from any monarch, or the Queen Victoria, let alone our celebrities and their red carpet arrivals. He enters in lowly on a donkey's colt. So although this was an act of honor and celebration, he comes humble, mounted on a donkey's colt of all things. The king of glory, the creator of the universe. You know, the only thing lower than a donkey is a donkey's colt, amen? And what's lower than a donkey's colt? A borrowed donkey's colt. And the king of glory, the one that created all this, rides in on a borrowed donkey's colt, a wild beast, for his red carpet arrival. Now, donkeys in Israel are are very different from what we know as an American mule. Those of you that were with us in uh, Israel, if you remember when we were in Petra, there was a group of us, there was 30 of us all together, I think about 10 of us, rented these donkeys to, to make our way up the steep uh, ridges of Petra and uh, I was the laughingstock of the group for when I sat on this s- strong but small beast I dwarfed this thing and I had to keep my feet up and keep them from dragging <laughs> so, that's what Jesus is riding on right here in other words beloved this is no mighty victorious looking beast He rides in on a donkey's colt. Verse 37, as he was drawing near, already on the way to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. John's account tells us that a good part of that mob was a group who either witnessed the resurrection of Lazarus or heard about the resurrection of Lazarus. What greater work is there than that? So here they are. They're, welcome, they're welcoming him as who he is, as a king. Okay. But kings, you see, normally rode into their places of appointment or their roles of rulership on white royal chargers. Not a donkey's colt. Hey, <coughs> I mean, a brilliant white horse in full array, a uh, full array beautifully adorned, surrounded by officers, surrounded by guards. With a countermeasure protection team with him, just like our president. Not Jesus. Not the King of Kings. Not the Creator and Ruler of the universe. Instead of riding in on a white steed of a military victor or king, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a lowly colt of a donkey. Why? Zechariah tells us why. Jesus said that the Son of Man must go according to what? The Scriptures. Look at Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. The prophet says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal, of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, from river one from the river to the ends of the earth. In other words, beloved, he will provide peace for you from warfare. We're talking spiritual warfare, beloved. We're talking spiritual deliverance. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and he is king over all of God's elect, be they Jew or Gentile, from sea to sea. That's his people. He's coming to save them. So when Jesus rides in here, it is to display the character of that kingdom. The savior of the world. Saving mankind from throughout the world. Jew and Gentile alike. That was always the intention of God. Jews didn't get this. We'll learn next week that the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, was the the, the house of prayer for Jews and Gentiles. That was always his intention. So this was a foreordained action. There's no coincidence here, this isn't set up. This is nothing less than Jesus' sovereign direction over this entire event. Now, in response, mm-hmm. the mob begins to acknowledge him. They, he, they, they, they begin to acknowledge him as who he is and who he is not. They're half right and very wrong at the same time. They begin to say, notice now that the temporal royal welcome of the mob. Verse 38 They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This is a straight messianic quote from the Psalms. Speaking of God's king, that they have right. So what does it mean? Well, the problem for them is that in their minds, they have it that God is now finally satisfied. Here comes his king. Because you see, they could not believe that God was at peace or heaven was at peace unless Jerusalem was at peace. They figured that there'll never be peace in heaven until there's peace in Jerusalem. There's many people who think this way today. They say heaven is not what it should be until Jerusalem is what it ought to be. Total peace Glory in heaven in their minds was contingent upon peace and glory in Jerusalem. Now, the language that they use here is cited from Psalm 118, verse 25. It says, save us, we pray, O Lord, O Lord, we pray, give us success. Verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Matthew, Mark. In John's account, they tell us that they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. In other words, Hosanna to the king. That's what they're saying. Hosanna means save now. So they're saying, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Save us now. Save us now. Almighty king. But see, they're not talking about spiritual salvation from sin, beloved. They've got it all wrong. They're saying, save our nation. Save us now from the oppression of these Romans. Save us from our earthly condition. Save us from our discomfort. Save us from these foreigners. Now, John's account, chapter 12, verse 13, tells us that they took palm branches and they both laid them down and they raised him up, hailing him as Hosanna. Hosanna, they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, this, this phrase, blessed is he who comes, is a Jewish idiom for welcome. Welcome, mighty king. Welcome in the Lord's name. That's what they're saying. They hail him king of Israel. So they're right. For now. But in their ignorance, they make the right proclamation for all the wrong reasons, beloved. Now, at this point, these Jews surrounding the streets are likely thinking in terms of the Maccabean revolt in 170 years earlier. Okay, when Antiochus Epiphanes IV overtakes the temple of the Jews where one day this hero, Judas Maccabeus, rises up and opposes this tyrant. They eventually overtake the temple and they take back the temple. And what do the people do in response? They raise palm branches and they herald this king. And from that point forward, the Jews celebrated every year what's known as the Feast of Lights, And then they celebrate it to this very day, and that which we know as Hanukkah. That was in 170, or 167 rather. Well, in 141, Simon Maccabee drove the Syrian forces clear out of Jerusalem. And they heralded him. They had music, and they were waving palm branches once again. So from that point in Jewish history, the palm branch, you see, became a sign of military... Triumph. That's their expectation. So the crowd you see is absolutely right, but it won't be long and they'll be absolutely wrong. Because in a matter of days, the same mob, the majority of them anyway, will say what? Crucify Him. Give us Barabbas. Crucify Him. Because their expectation of Messiah is limited to the restoration of a nation. So they see this entry as liberation from Rome. They see this entry as resurrection. is a resurrection of what? Their national pride, that's it. National pride, they've got it all wrong. So they're right in one sense, and their response is Jesus arrives, because he is king. But they are wrong in their expectation of him. We're like this many times, right? We're often like this. You know, a lot of Christians sometimes become embittered against God as they trace back certain unmet expectations they have of God. That God caused this, God caused that. He didn't meet my expectation here or there. So they become embittered towards him. You ever heard of Johnny Erickson Tata? This wonderful woman of God, she's a quadriplegic. She's been in a wheelchair, I believe, for almost 40 years now. She draws and paints these beautiful pictures with uh, brushes and pencils in her teeth. She says this, quote, So much of our Christian walk is focused on self. How will this trial refine my faith, improve my character, or fit into a pattern for my good? Often when believers speak of a personal savior, they mean a savior who is personally committed to their health, success, and life fulfillment. But such a view couldn't be further from the truth if Christ is our master, end quote. If he's master, that means we're what? Slaves of righteousness. Enabled and empowered by him for one purpose, and that is to bring glory to the king. Now, this group will turn on Jesus like that as soon as their expectations aren't met. Because what Jesus is going to do in this coming week, he's going to teach them what they do not want to hear. They'll turn against him. The Savior they want is not the Savior they need, you see of salvation in church life that we think we need oftentimes is anything but this you know we think well we need more money we need uh, more tranquility we need a therapeutic gospel I need you to make me feel good I need fellowship where my ideals are met and I'm providing some self-esteem that's how we often think they thought they needed a mighty conquering military king what they needed is a savior there's sin. We need a savior, beloved. And he rides in on a donkey's colt. So in the midst of all of this celebration, notice now there's conflict once again, which is stirred up because of Jesus. And who caused more controversy than the Lord Jesus Christ? Anybody come to mind? Nobody. Verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Pharisees are outraged at this point. They're not thinking for a moment that he's their Messiah, that's for sure. But what really outraged them was not only the praises of the crowd, but the fact that Jesus received the praises of the crowd. He accepted their praise. Tell them to shut up. What does Jesus say? I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. The stones would know better than you. They'll shout. If I quiet them, they'll scream. They'll say, Hosanna. So the crowds are speaking in royal procession language here. And this infuriates the Pharisees. So this is also proof that it was Jesus' intention here to go public. And that he did. Why? Because he's God's eternal king, beloved. Beloved. He is not a king to those who choose to make him king. He's king whether we accept it or not. He is king of kings. He is lord of lords. He's more than just a king above royal earthly rulers. He created those royal earthly rulers. He put them into position. He put them into place. He's not merely king over the church. He's king over the universe. He's the sovereign creator. He's the cosmic ruler. And the problem here was these religious leaders didn't recognize their cosmic creator, the Messiah that they were anticipating, the Savior they were hoping for. In the scriptures, they thought they knew so well. (laughs) They knew nothing. So when their misinformed expectations weren't met in Jesus, they said, kill him. Now, the likes of these men are the very reason which the Old Testament prophets, when they came preaching and reproving the people, accused the people of being blind and dumb. In Isaiah 56, his watchmen, they're blind. They're all ignorant. They're all dumb dogs. They cannot bark. They sleep, loving to slumber. Yes, they are greedy dogs. They are shepherds who cannot understand. I mean, even think about it. Even the creation knows enough to acknowledge, obey, and submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, in Isaiah chapter 1, what does he say? He comes right out the chute with us. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey knows its master's crib, but Israel does not know, my people they do not understand. Creation itself is more expectant with regard to the return of Jesus Christ than man is left to himself. And even some Christians for that matter. Romans 8. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For we know that the whole creation has been what? Groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now that's precisely the imagery that Jesus draws from when he says look if I quiet them these stones will scream they'll worship me for they have more sense than you now beloved these are the facts of the entry here now is very apparent to any one who reads this narrative account but what I want to go on to do in the next few minutes is is to learn from this historical narrative the spiritual lessons in view for us. And this came way this week uh, by me looking at a verse that I've either either overlooked before or don't remember ever seeing before. And it's in the book of Job. Chapter 11, verse 12. And it says this. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born. A man. The NIV puts it like this. A witless man can no more become wise than a donkey, than a wild donkey's colt can be born a man. In other words, it's impossible, right? Now, the context to this first, let me lay this out. Here's the context. You remember Job. You remember the trouble of Job. Who caused the trouble of Job? God. Did God inform Job? No. Did God have a plan? Yes. So in the midst of Job's sufferings, his three so-called friends surround Job. At first, they're quiet. That's a really good thing to do, just to remain quiet and be there. But they weren't content with that. They started talking. And then Zophar, one of those friends, in the midst of pointing out to Job why he's probably suffering, well, it's some sin in your life, bud. Right, He he provides this proverb. And as I was thinking about this, and I've never thought about it before, all that Job's friends did was pick and criticize and counsel them foolishly. And you know what they didn't do? They didn't pray. They talked about Job praying but they didn't pray. And here's a, here's a side note. Here's something free this morning. Whenever we as believers pick, criticize, complain, and are seemingly never satisfied, we always have problems with someone in the church, we have problems with the church, is always, without doubt, a reflection of a lacking prayer life. At best it is a result of prayer life a prayer life that is focused on self James what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you is it not this that your passions are at war within you your you desire you do not have so you murder you covet and cannot obtain so you fight and quarrel you do not have because you do not ask, and then when you do ask, you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own selfish pleasures. This struck me so much. I've never seen this before. They didn't get it because they were ignorant of Satan's devices and they became the tools of Satan. by the way, another side note. Every Wednesday night, we have corporate prayer. You're welcome to come any Wednesday night. We pray for the church. We pray that Jesus Christ will be glorified through you. You're the church. I'm the church. I try to make it there twice out of the month. Hutchins is there every Wednesday. There's people there. Come. Pray. Watch yourself grow along with your brothers and sisters. So finally, in the situation with Job, Uh, God intervenes in the situation and he makes it clear to Job's friends that they were not speaking the truth concerning Job. And then God orders them to go slaughter seven bulls and seven rams. He goes, sacrifice this before Job. And then when you're done, I'm going to have Job pray for you. And I'll accept his prayers on your behalf. That's the context. The irony of which is this. The man who spoke this proverb, a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man, which is never, was really applied to him and not Job. Right? Okay, now back to the triumphal entry. The point of this proverb is that this is impossible because by nature a donkey can't give birth to a man. Think about a donkey. What is their nature? Are they kind animals? Oh, no, they are not kind. They are mean. They are not gentle beasts. They are stubborn. They're wild by nature. So the donkey's colt is born wild by nature. We're sinners by nature. What do we produce? Sinners by nature. A donkey's colt that has never been ridden has never been broken. They will not carry a load. A wild donkey will not bow to a yoke, let alone allow you or me to sit on him. And if we do put a bit in its mouth, or we put a load on its back, or we sit on him, it will fight, it will kick, it will bite, and if all else fails, it will simply sit down. Right? In other words, they're wild and useless until they're broken. And if this isn't a picture of man's uselessness to God in and of himself, before God changes the nature, I don't know what is. Because every sinner by nature is tied and bound like this little this donkey's colt. Until it's untied and brought to Jesus as he commands, bring it to me. Because what? I have need of it. And then he tames them into a useful participant that brings glory to who? The broken donkey or to its rider, Jesus Christ? To Christ. This was a wild donkey that no one had ever sat upon. When Jesus, the Prince of Peace, sat on on this donkey, did it buck, did it kick, did it sit down? No, it did its job. It brought glory to Christ. Ridden through the streets so that Christ could be exalted, he could be praised, and bowed down to. There were some believers there. It takes the King of Kings to break a man, it takes the Prince of Peace to break a sinful woman, to create in them a new nature, you see. He's the one to be exalted. He's the one to be heralded. He's the one, beloved, to be made much of. We come to church to make much of him. Amen? We come to church to learn of him. Not five points of application to my life. You know, man in and of himself in the Bible is never spoken about positively. Listen to the words of Scripture. Speaking about us outside of Christ before he transforms us. None is righteous, no not. No one understands, no one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Which ones? All of them. No one does good, not even one. They all together have become filthy. The venom of asps is under their lips. The venom of snakes. Their mouths are full of curses and bitterness. They're vain. They're nothing but selfish. They're foolish and they're useless in and of themselves. But according to his timing, when he comes to the sinners and he says, come, I have need of you to do my bidding to bring me glory. Come. Some have said I come to church because I want to leave here feeling good about myself truth of the matter is you come to the wrong place. Because there ought to be here, beloved, in our minds, a reminder about Him, the King of glory. This King, because His purpose in dying for you, yes, it was to save you, but that wasn't the ultimate goal of your salvation. The ultimate goal of your salvation is the glory of Jesus Christ. Taking a sinner like this, the guy that's speaking to you and transforming him, His nature into a follower of Christ. Atoned for, made righteous by the active and passive obedience of Jesus Christ. So may we come and may we leave, beloved, feeling ecstatic about Him, how He has transformed us, and how He continues to transform us into His image according to the union that we have with Him. And that is an everlasting union. Let's go a little charismatic and say amen. 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 So, this triumphal entry was just that an entry of triumph towards his passion, which was utter humility. This glorified, exalted, reigning king sits on the throne, beloved, by way of this passion. He was coronated on earth, he was given a crown of thorns for you, dying, rising, and ascending to another coronation that looks like this, clothed, the long white robe, a golden sash around his chest, hairs of his head white like wool, white like snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he holds the seven stars. That's the church. From his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. His face like the sun, shining in full strength. John says, when I saw him, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand upon me saying, fear not. There's no fear for those who are in Christ. I'm the first, and I'm the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I live forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This king entered Jerusalem in humility. He was risen victoriously, and he will return triumphantly. Are you with me this morning, beloved? Amen. All who share in the humiliation of Christ will share in the exaltation of Christ. If you participate in the humility of Christ, you will share in the glory of Christ. A promise of the kingdom to be shared with the King of glory for all who confess the name of this King, Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, you are guaranteed to enter into glory triumphantly because he triumphed in our place in humility. That's the entrance to the passion. Do you know him? Not do you know about him. Do you know him? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone as declared here? The only way The only truth, the only life, which means you must repent of all false belief systems, turn and embrace him, and you will become the recipient of the glory that awaits those that are in Christ. Come to me all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you, what? Rest. Rest.